0: Well good morning Ignite Church. Good morning to all the guests and visitors and thank you to Pastors Darren, Leanne and the team for the invitation to be here to share a journey of a scientist coming to Christ through the primary mechanism of science. It's rather interesting when a person comes to Christ and uh, it's not done with the help of other Christians. It's, it's fascinating and you'll love the journey. And I'm going to share with you part of that journey, only part of it in terms of the science. And I'm going to keep it very, very simple, by the way. I'm not going to get deep in science. I'm not going to throw big words at you, all the rest of it. I'm going to keep it very simple. I'm going to keep it on one topic only, even though there are many topics I researched as I travelled the world. Only one topic I'll bring to your attention today. And if we've got that up on the screen, there we go. From evolutionist to creationist, it's a personal journey. Um, yes, you can see the qualifications there. I have all those qualifications, and don't call me Dr. Ron, please. Just call me Ron, okay? That's the way it should be. I lived in China for 10 years, and they refused to call me Ron. I was not allowed to be called Ron. I had to be called Dr. Neller or Dr. Ron. That was their respect for academics over there. But it was interesting. But I don't rather not have that term because I, I've actually been on airlines twice. And the, and the hostesses have come running to me, you're a doctor aren't you? Come help, there's a patient need needs your help straight away. I'm going, no I'm an earth scientist, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But anyhow, great to be here, love being here. I must admit, I did like your comments Leanne, that um, I wasn't sure as I sat there or stood there, whether I was singing, whether I was worshipping, whether I was hearing a message... And particularly the message that, you know, God is coming after me. That is very, very relevant in my journey that I'll share with you today. That God was running after me my entire life. Trouble was, I was running away. And uh, so it's incredible when you come to a a spirit-filled church and the power of the worship. You almost want to go, why stop? Why not just keep going on? But anyhow, thank you for the invitation to be here again. And uh, let's... uh, start this off. So we'll see if we can, if this is going to work. We've decided to see if we could use triggers now up the front. Let me see if it's working. It's not going to work. Is the thing in? Is the trigger in? That wasn't me that did that. It was me. Oh, you just got to wait half an hour. Okay, that's, that's good. Well, as you can see there, I'm a scientist. That's a picture of me, not... In the past, it's a picture of me in the future because I get very upset with my hairdresser because each time I go, the amount of grey that's there gets increased and it's starting to curl and all the rest of it. But I was not a scientist who played in laboratories and did all those experiments. I was a scientist who was actually engaged in the field. And we'll try that again. Here we go. What I focused on at university and during my PhD was landscapes and floods. I was an earth scientist, sediments, fossils, microbiology. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why that microbes were there. I think I had a midlife crisis as an academic and started to study microbes. And please forgive me, I was the guy that trained Warish Ahmed who became the CSIRO expert tracking down COVID insistent I'm sorry, I trained him. Uh, I'm forgiven, thank you. <laughs> but... Um, So in terms of uh, what I I was actually interested in landscapes and understanding why is this landscape shaped like this, why is that valley of that size, why are these massive water gaps, incredible mountains, what created them, particularly floods. I actually prefer to call myself a flood chaser because I travel the world chasing floods. And I travelled, as you can see, I lived in 10 years in China learning to speak Cantonese. I lived in Finland for a couple of years learning to speak Finnish. Um, interesting language, the Finnish language, and uh, they uh, they roll the R's. So my name is Ron. Okay, my name is Ron. And you always pronounce the first syllable. Has anybody been to Finland, by the way? You'll love it. Yeah. I love the first, they pronounce the first uh, vowel, actually, they pronounce the first vowel. So it's not Helsinki, it's Helsinki. You've actually got to pronounce it, so it's Ron. And uh, I love being in Finland. Great people. I love the men. They don't speak to you. They they don't speak to anybody. They're just quiet. And I was quiet at that stage as well. I went to Libya, worked for Gaddafi for a while. Oh, look at the looks I'm getting now. (laughs) Pastor Darren, you're in big trouble now, I tell you. Anyhow, I did not work in any of those endeavours. I was actually engaged in looking at water supply um, and uh, catchment management and those sorts of things. I actually worked for one of Gaddafi's sons. And it's not the country you thought it was, by the way. Yes, it's Muslim. Yes, it's got its problems. But they actually had Jewish synagogues and Christian churches in Tripoli. That was prior to the actual uh, um, civil war they had, basically. They actually had them and the Jews were allowed to live there. I sat in a sauna with a bunch of Libyans one night discussing the Jewish situation and they pronounced that the Jews had the right of that land. Isn't that interesting, given all the problems we see today? And that all fell apart, of course, after the civil war that went on there. So did I enjoy the Libyans? Yes, because they allowed me to travel in a car at any speed I wanted. There are no road rules in Libya. (laughs) If you can imagine Brisbane and that freeway that runs past it and all the big buildings, I got up to 160 on that in Tripoli with my friend from University of Queensland going, no, no, we're going to die. And I thought, this is incredible. It's like playing those games, you know? It really is. Anyhow... My wife's not here, so I can tell you these stories. Otherwise, I'm in big trouble. I worked in Peru, loved it in Peru. Um, Peru Has anybody been to Peru, been to the Amazon? You haven't? Did you swim in the Amazon? You kept your fingers out? You did? You went to the Amazon? I went swimming. Yeah, you went swimming too. You can. The piranha actually don't really care about you. You're too tough. You're tasteless. It's the wrong way around. That's Jacques Cousteau trying to raise money for himself. So he drove cattle into a billabong where the piranha was starving. They wouldn't even touch the cattle in. So he had to cut the cattle in order to get the piranha to even attack the cattle. Now, don't do that in Africa. The piranha there do like you and they will eat you. So the piranha did not eat me in the Amazon. I ate them with a Peruvian sauce. Oh, they are beautiful. (laughs) Uh, Beautiful to eat a piranha. So I ate a lot of different things as I ran around the world. I can tell you now, I enjoyed it. There are parts of animals I ate and didn't realise I was eating and wished I'd never had. But uh, now nah, it was all good fun. It's when you get offered a soup of fish brains. That's really an interesting soup. Or toast with fish eyes covering it all like that. Just fish eyes extracted. Interesting foods. But anyhow, I uh, worked in the Pacific Islands, worked in South Africa, loved working in South Africa. Saw all the big animals as well. And uh, just to end that little journey around the world that I undertook for much of my life, I, there was one incident in South Africa I always remember. It's when a rogue elephant decided to rush at the vehicle that we were in, driving around, looking at floods and looking at landscapes. A rogue elephant decided to come at us. And I panicked, and I said to the driver, in an open four-wheel drive, no, no roof on it, just an open one, which is what you do, you drive around like that, sitting next to lions, but they can't detect you, they detect the vehicle, not you. So you can sit next to a lion, just don't use a flash camera like I did because the lion goes, what? There is someone there. What happened? He said, no, we sit still with this elephant charging us. And I started to panic, no, we've really got to move. He said, no, we sit still. And just as the elephant approached, he put his foot on the clutch and then he accelerated and he revved the car with different tones. He went, and the elephant realized that we were not running, we were going to fight. So it swung straight past me just like that. And he said, see, it's not a problem, we can continue our journey. I says, no, we can't, we have to go back to the hotel, I have to get changed. (laughs) So, I had a lot of fun travelling around the world. Was I shot at? Yes. Was I arrested by foreign governments? Yes. Was I drugged and robbed? Yes. Was I kidnapped a couple of times. All well, the attempts were made to kidnap me as well. Um, so I loved it. I enjoyed it. Did I catch every disease possible? Yes. You were all worried about COVID, really? I got that in... We got, there's so many variations of that in China. I can tell you that long before I came back here in 97, there was, in fact, um, lots of those examples going around. I was sick many times with those sorts of flus. Uh, They were quite common. So um, the question is, why did I do all that? Why did I run around the world like that, acting crazy, going into strange remote places and so on? Well, the answer comes back to the beginning, in that I was raised in a dysfunctional home. Alcoholic violence was rife. I still carried the scars on my body, and uh, so I was regularly beaten and so on. And so I did not learn how to communicate or to connect with people. I did not understand what love was, because my parents were always fighting. Uh, by the way, when he turned 70, my father asked for forgiveness for what he had done and didn't realize that that's not the way you raise children, um, but my brothers and sisters went through the same thing. Um, we had various members of our family, extended family in jail, still in jail, all the rest of it. So, uh, so what happened was I, I thought education would be good, went to high school, I became then the victim of another form of abuse. And you hear about that in Christian churches. But guess what? It was actually in those days more rife in public schools than it was in Christian churches. But the governments won't admit that because the compensatory payouts would be massive. But the secular schools were as bad, if not worse, in the sort of abuse that you received. So I was abused for a number of years there. So by the time I finished high school, I did not know how to connect with a person, how to communicate, or so on. I didn't even qualify for university up front, but I still decided it was my only chance to escape all of this horror that I lived in, so I went to the local university, lined up in every queue, and every guy went, no, your name's not on the list, sorry. I well, I'll just go and join another queue, my name is bound to be on the list somewhere. And eventually they called security and all the rest, you know, because this strange student wandering around campus, and an old chap came up and I told my story, I told him the whole story. And I cried, he rang me that night and said he was chaplain of the university and under Act So-and-So I could go to the university but I had to pay unlike every other student. And so I went and explained out to the steelworks down in Wollongong at the time and uh, they gave me a job and they actually felt very sorry for me so they gave me a double shift every day except Sundays. I earned a lot of money but it paid then for me to go to university and so on. Did I pass the first few courses? Of course not. You know, <laughs> you got to learn not to go out with those 18-year-olds and drink alcohol all the time. So I went out with the seniors, you know, the ones that are your peers, the 21-year-old, you know. <laughs> They're your peers. And I worked with them and I quickly rose the ranks, um, very quickly went on, did an honours thesis, uh, put a lot of effort into that. In fact, that was published in an international journal and then went on, wanted to do a Master's. They said, no, you're going on to do a PhD straight away. And I was sent off to the University of New England then to do a PhD in the various topics that I have spoken about. So why did I leave the country? Because honestly, I didn't want to be here. In that period of time in history, nobody cared. The social services didn't really worry about you, the police would come around occasionally to the violence but do take no action and the schools of course turned a blind eye to the abuse in those days and so what did I want to do? I wanted to leave my family, I wanted to leave the community I wanted to leave this country and I was prepared to go anywhere and I did and that what, what was the reason there? it's the reason that most people out there are looking, they're trying to identify who they are, what their purpose is Why are they here? That was what I was doing. And I think that's very important to us as Christians to understand that the people out there who are not Christians are asking those same questions. They're asking, who am I? What is my role? What is my purpose? And when they don't get an answer, what do they do? They start going down various tracks that they shouldn't go down, that you know about. And so we need to help them to identify who they are, and that's always in God's image. So I took off around the world. I did, by the way, before I get into a little bit of science, I did actually go to churches as I travelled around the world. Isn't that interesting? I went to churches. Did I go there because I believed in Christ? No. Did I go there because I wanted to be a Christian? No. But if my boss in a university or a research centre was a Christian, I went there to impress them. See, when you have a struggle in life and you're looking to get to the top, you will use whatever technique you can find. And so I then decided to go along to churches at times and so on. And this is for the pastors. Be careful of a person who volunteers at everything. What they're trying to do is not hear the message. I volunteered in everything I could do to get out of the service. I'd be in the kitchen. I'd be in the resources. I'd be somewhere else. Or I'd even go on the slide projectors down the back. Why? Because I could then just not pay any attention. I could be pretending to be on the computer. Isn't that terrible? But guess what? The seed was planted. Every now and then you're going to hear a message. But I remember in the Cook Islands, I went there, I went to a ministerial meeting, and there's all these ministers from departments, and I sat down with them as a top international consultant by then, and I thought, let's get to work. And they said, yes, we will, after we pray. I went, what do you mean we pray? This is a government department. And they said, no, we all pray. And I said, oh, are you praying? Oh, yes, because I'm pastor of this church as well as the government minister of. Oh yes, and I'm pastor of this church, or I'm an elder in this church. Oh, okay, so I just, okay, let's pray. Yep. So I did all that. I thought I then, to impress the Cook Island government, I better go along to their beautiful church, one of their big white churches. I thought, I'll go along there. And I went into there, and the music was beautiful. It was. But I was really agitated. And lo and behold, did not a massive Cook Islander, must have been a rugby player, reached over from behind me grabbed my shoulders, started to massage me, and he said, hey bro, chill, chill bro, just chill, okay? <laughs> he could see I was agitated in a church. <laughs> and I turned to, to deck him, and of course, yeah, okay, <laughs> I won't do that. So the seed was planted in many locations around the world. So that's my journey as to why, uh, part of the reason I'm here today, the foundation of all of that. But then, what did I teach? I taught that the things I was learning about sediments and uh, uh, fossils and those sorts of things all pointed to evolution. Why? Because that's what I was taught. Did I believe it through science? No. But I believed it because I was taught that by academics, by professors. And I say, yes, some of it might point to the Bible, but I gave that a very narrow arrow compared to a very thick arrow going to the uh, arrow going to the evolutionary. So as I travelled the world, I was basically preaching evolution even though I was not an expert in that and so on. Why? Because we were taught that. But one of the fascinating things is that when I was younger at university, uh, my honours and my PhD professors all said the same thing. You need, you need to understand what science is. Not what the media presented, but what is really science. And this is a very simple explanation put up here. It's much more complicated than this, but I want you to look at this in in two parts. There's the left-hand part, which has got experimental science. That's what the media-present science is. It's experimental. It's factual. It's the truth. Now that is essentially elements such as chemistry or physics where if I give you a chemical experiment and if I walked up to one of you and said look I'm going to give you this laboratory procedure, these chemicals, this glassware, this procedure, this timing and so on you're to follow that exactly as I have done it will you get the same answer? Yes, you will. That's called experimental science. But how much of science is actually experimental? When it comes to biology, geomorphology, earth science, hydrology, astrophysics, All of those topics, it is largely not experimental. It is what's called the historical or forensic, I call it, interpretational science. Because I cannot run an experiment. I can't say, look, I missed out on that big flood that hit Brisbane in 1974. Can you, council, go back and open up the floodgates again and flood the city again so I can have all my instruments ready and measure it? You can't do that. You can't say, look... uh, a black hole. Let's create a couple of black holes, duplicate them, replicate them, do some experiments on them. We can't do that. In other words, what we do there with that interpretational, as a geologist or an earth scientist, you might see something over there, a rock. You might see a rock there. Were you there when they were created? No, you were not. And so how do you link those two rocks together? You can measure a lot of things. But in the end, you know what's going to link them together or not link them together? You, you are going to make an interpretation. That's what you're going to do. You have to make an interpretation. And I, this is such an important message, I do it every time, so my poor old friends from CMI, uh, Creation Ministries, who hear this often, are just going to turn off right now. But this is where I look, I give an example of this. Now, Because I'm an academic, I'm going to put you now into an experiment with me. I'm going to ask for a response from you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you half a million dollars to go to South Africa to find some dinosaur bones. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Yep, you're all going? Excellent. So you're going to go over there and you're going to find two bones. One there and one there. The shape, size, dimension, colour, whatever you measure of that bone is very, very similar to the shape, size, dimension of that bone. They're both dinosaur bones. They're very similar in characteristics you're going to come back to Australia and you're going to come to me as your professor now and you're going, put your hand up if you're going to come back to me and say, I found two bones of the one dinosaur species. They Both, both those blo- uh, bones belong to the one dinosaur species. Put your hand up if you're going to do that. One, two three four a few of you excellent love your answer fantastic there's about four or five of you let's form a team together I'll get some more research monies for you I'm sending you back over there to do some more research we publish some papers by the way on this I'm looking forward to publishing papers with you my name will be on as well remember that as an academic my name will be on that paper and I'll also look for promotion in your case you're all looking at me a bit strange How many of you, raise your hands, would come back and say, I'm sorry, Ron, those two bones are not the same species of dinosaurs? Put your hand up. A few more? Okay. Love your answer. Fantastic. Let's write a paper that you found dinosaur bones of two species. I'm going to get you some more research monies. We're going to go back to Africa. I want my name on the publications, and we're going to put a good team together, and I'll get you some promotion, okay? Now here's the question you weren't expecting me to ask. Put your hand up. If you have not yet, put your hand up. Come on, up high. Look around. Look around. How many people, right? Do you think that as an academic or research student at a university, you're going to come back after spending half a million dollars in another country, you're going to tell me this is what you found out in the field, and you're going to stand before me, and you're going to go, I don't know. Guess what? You're terminated. (laughs) We do not spend money doing those sorts of things. That's the way it works in university. It's the way it works in research centres. You will come up with an interpretation. Government's not giving you, or anyone else not giving you half a million dollars to go and have a good time in South Africa and then come back and say, you don't know, you just had a good time. doesn't work like that. You will give an answer. There's the problem, and there's the message today. Very important for you on anything that comes in the media, on television, whether it's television or newspapers, when a scientist or the media say a scientist has discovered this, this is incredible, blah, 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 this is the truth, I want you to ask the following question. Were they there when it was formed? Were they able to replicate or duplicate that in an experiment? If they have not been able to do that, then tell you what, That's an interpretation. That's all it is. It's not the truth. And that's where you've got to be very important with what you do. So I took this journey of exploring all of this. It took me 30 years because despite what some media people say about academics, we're not always that intelligent. We're not always going to vote a certain way. Uh, It took me 30 years to uncover what I was really seeing. So let's have a look. I'm going to talk about fossils, that one little element there, because I thought you might like fossils. Fossils, how are they formed? Now I'm going to give you a simple explanation here and then an interpretation. Fossils are, are created and I'm going to give you an exa- uh, The way I'm speaking this is both a geologic, secular and Christian view. We don't disagree with each other. Geologists all around the world or geomorphologists, we don't disagree. How do you create a fossil? It's all very simple. You take a A fish, and I've chosen a fish to be a fossil because over 90% of all fossils are marine. Okay, that's an important point to remember later. They're mainly marine. There's a happy little fish swimming in the ocean, nice and clean, you know, the salinity's right, the temperature's right and so on. But there's one word I'm going to use that's scientific. The big word, it's called sediment. It's a big word, sediment. It means dirt on the move. So, when you lose dirt out of your garden or the agricultural fields lose dirt and it gets washed away, we call it sediment. That's a key to fossil creation. So, that fish is happy at the moment. I want you to notice also the emotions of the fish. Okay, happy fish. Okay, panicking fish. Why? Because what's appeared? sediment, it's going to change the viscosity the turbidity, maybe the temperature, all sorts of things, it's getting a panic look about it, it doesn't like that sediment, and you hear that in the media all the time because what it does, let's get back we've gone too far there back, back, yeah there we go, what it does it actually buries the fish poor fish, dead And under a lot of sediment, we move on, becomes a fossil. Now you saw it was unhappy as a dead fish, but now it's happy as a fossil. Because now somebody's going to come along and interpret it. They might go, is it a fish? Maybe it's not a fish. Looks like one. But maybe it's the first fish that clawed out onto the land. There are papers written like that. I've been to conferences where that has been said. All very interesting. But the most important thing is it knows it's getting a new name. It's going to get a new name. Now suppose in all of your expansion work here on this particular block, you've done great work, you've dug down into the ground and so on, and that fish, if you want to call it a fish, was found under this church, Ignite Church. Guess what? You can name it. And I think it would be very good if we named it, Darinicara (laughs) Braniaduas. I warned your pastor there would be one moment when he would wake up during my talk. (laughs) You give him that name. Why not? I think it's quite a good name, don't you? Darinikara? Yeah, I like that. So anyhow... What do we need for all of that? We needed rapid burial and we need a lot of sediment. Lots of sediment we need and it's got to be rapid. Because if a fish is not buried under a lot of sediment and buried, buried rapidly, what does it do? It floats. It bloats and floats. We hear that all across Australia all the time. So nobody argues about that. Where they argue is how much sediment and where did it come from. Now, again, let's look at what we interpret and what we actually know. What have we measured and replicated? But what do we interpret? So if we now look at here, you see that image there, a construction site. What's your immediate interpretation of the amount of sediment? Would you say there's a lot of sediment coming down there? Yeah, you would. But that's your interpretation. See, when I say lot, what what does that mean? Does that mean the total volume? Does that mean where it's all going to go and pile up? You look at that and you go, wow, that's terrible. But is all that going to go to one spot and bury a fish quite deeply? No, it's going to be dispersed. That's what's going to happen. So for a moment, and it may only be a brief moment during the intensity of the storm, you're going to see a flush of sediment. But will it go to one location? It won't. Here we are in Takatuma Lagoon when I was working in the Cook Islands. Why was I there? Because the Cook Island New Zealand government wanted to pay somebody to go over there and have a good time swimming in the coral. And by now I'd risen to professorial ranks around the world. I thought, I'll take that contract, go over there, sit down on the atolls, have a drink, look at the beautiful scenes. The question was, is that a lot of sediment that's going to destroy the uh, coral, which is up there? doesn't show there too well, but it, you see little dots under the water. That's the coral. Coral is the Rorotonga's, you know, it's sort of a... Um, tourist attraction, if you destroy that, you've taken away much of the value of the Cook Islands there. So is that sediment washed down from the construction site going to kill that coral? Because what do we hear about it in, in Queensland? What do we hear about it up in the Barrier Reef? We hear that it's going down there and killing the coral, right? What's your impression of that? Oh, you're getting wary now, aren't you? You're all getting wary. It looks bad. It looks bad, but that's actually the colour based on the very fine particle size. It's a clay. So what happens? It goes out, covers the coral. The next tide washes it off the coral because it's so thin, such a thin layer going out there. The image looks bad, but the actual data indicate the opposite. In other words, it gets washed off. Now, a scientist said that in Northern Queensland University A professor, very similar background to me, geomorphology, earth science, he said the sediment is not destroying the Great Barrier Reef. What did the university do to him? Sacked him. He took it to court. The court said he had to be reappointed back to the university. So what did the university do again? Sacked him again. Why? Wasn't towing the party line. In fact, what you may not have known is that the chair of the Marine Research Grants Committee, giving the money of research monies to all the universities, was from that university. And to say that the sediment is not causing a damage to the Great Barrier Reef would be the loss of hundreds of millions of dollars to that university. So yes, you have to accept the paradigm, you have to toe the line, or you're out. Fortunately, New Zealand government didn't sack me (laughs) for making the same statement in... Takatuma Lagoon. And therein again I'm looking here at interpretations. Okay so let's now look I'm going to now draw data together from all around the world and just show you how much sediment does go out there and you're going to ask the question is this enough to create a fossil? So first of all let's look at the oceans. Don't even try to understand that image it's a highly complex image. Look for the red spots. The red spots indicate that all of our monitoring of the ocean floor all around the world has highlighted that the best, deepest sedimentation we're going to get anywhere in the world, in the ocean, not near shore, in the ocean, is 50 millimetres in a thousand years. (gasps) 50? That's exciting. 50 millimetres in a thousand years. I can't fossilise a cockroach with that. (laughs) It cannot be done. And yet there it is all around the world. So how do we explain over 90% of all the fossils are marine? I heard a few correct answers but we'll come back to that. I started to raise this question early on and my friends who were travelling with me, equally dysfunctional, they're called biologists, (laughs) they're like us earth scientists, they can't replicate, duplicate. They were not there. So like an earth scientist, their imagination is incredible. Biologists have incredible imaginations and I can say that openly and fully here because my wife is a biologist and she's not here. So I don't have to walk back home. I can actually drive back home today. They said, no, come closer to shore, Ron. You'll see the sediment is deeper, creating fossils. So let's move on. There we go. Ah, uh, Again, don't try to worry about interpreting that let me explain. That's up in uh, Rockhampton there on the left-hand side, going out to the deep oceans, the Capricornia Channel out there. What you're seeing there is a satellite image, but it's false colour. It's all false. Okay, It's showing you the sedimentation rate across the continental shelf next to the continent, Okay, the shallower waters. What do we find there? Ooh. We're getting up to 400 millimetres in a thousand years. Now, we're not monitoring a thousand years, are we? We're interpolating it based on all the records we've kept over the last 70 to 100 years. And then we've extrapolated that. And so there we go, 400 millimetres. Ooh, wow, wow. I cannot fossilise a cockroach, because how much would that be per year? 0.4 of a millimetre. You've got to put it in context. It doesn't mean a thing. Even, fascinatingly, you'll see up in the centre-top righty the ancient Fitzroy River Channel. When we did have an Ice Age, the Fitzroy River ran out across the continental shelf. Just as the Mary River ran out north of Harvey Bay, the channel is still there underwater. Even in Harvey Bay, the submarines use it. It's that deep. Here's the question. If that happened thousands of years ago, hasn't it been filled with sediment? It hasn't which indicates that what we're measuring today was the same as what we've measured over the last thousands of years had we been around. Anyhow, then my friends again would always say to me, come closer to shore, Ron. So let's look at the next one. And it is not moving. Maybe just do it manually. There we go. Estuarine sedimentation rates. Come close to there, we now get up to 3.6 millimeters. That's not my measurements. That's the measurements of hundreds or thousands of scientists all around the world. We get 3.6 millimeters per year in a mangrove. It's now getting up to three millimeters in a year. Yet everybody agrees. to create a fossil, you have to be buried fast. You can't sit there for a year waiting for three, and then another three, and then another three. What happens is the organism degrades, decomposes, gets eaten, gets predated. It doesn't survive. So that's not good enough. We looked at floodplains then. Let's come on to shore. And we can measure, when you look out here over your floodplains, we can go down and we can get the sedimentation rates and 3.2 centimetres per year, on the right-hand side, comes from Fiji. They had a 100-year flood, and they got 3.2 centimetres over a bit of an area. Not a big area, but a reasonable size. And by that, I mean maybe this block of land. Wow, 3.2. Doesn't still explain the trillions of fossils you see all around the world, does it? Anyhow, the largest amount of sediment ever seen deposited was by me. This is why I rose the ranks. I found 10 centimetres in the Macquarie Rivulet in New South Wales is an incredible... Thailand recently found a flood deposit at 8 centimetres of sediment over a large floodplain area. I still stand there with 10 centimetres, published in an international journal. And as I travel the world, ladies and gentlemen, speaking in churches all around the world, I am proud to declare that officially New South Wales is the dirtiest state on the planet. You're wondering how we get dates, you know, 1900, 17... I gave up, by the way. I did use carbon-14, thermoluminescence, potassium argon. I used all of them and walked away because the assumptions on them are absolutely false. I did that before I became a Christian. It is the weakest technology you could ever imagine. And yet, they will not question it. It's real. It's truthful. No, it's not. So what techniques did I start to use in floodplains? You're going to be surprised by this. I used Coca-Cola bottles. because Coca-Cola bottles kept changing their dimensions on a certain yearly rate. So you dig down, oh yeah, that Coca-Cola bottle was manufactured in this year. Gives us an approximation. Another one, for those of you who smoke, I thank you, we use cigarette butts from the litter. It gets washed in into there. Now, modern cigarette butts are degradable. They biodegrade. But the old ones did not. And we know when that conversion occurred in Australia from a non-degradable to a degradable butt. And so I dig down, no butts, no butts, no butts, no butts, no butts, oh, but there we go, that's the date. That's the date when we got rid of no butts, no biodegradable, no biodegradable butts into biodegradable butts. So we use those sort of human technologies or tech, uh, artefacts if you want to call them that. So, but again my friends, really we're getting frustrated with me now as we're travelling the world. Ron, Ron, what about catastrophic events, Ron? What about them big things like tsunamis? Well, guess what we found in a tsunami, the biggest tsunami ever recorded in history? woo 10 centimetres. 10 centimetres. You're going to go, that can't be right because your perception is of a massive destructive event. But that's it. After the Red Cross went in, in went the Earth scientists to measure how much sediment. We got 10 out of it. How come? Because a tidal wave, as it comes to shore, prior to reaching shore, is not a wave. It's an energy wave. Why do you think the boats go out to sea? Because there is no wave. It's the transfer of energy that only takes the shape of a wave when the actual wavelength or transfer of energy as it comes to shore reaches shallower shorelines, slows down and, and the energy then gets whatever it is in physics terms changed, it actually starts to form a wave. Only at that point, as it nears shore, does it create a wave, and only at that point can it begin to move sediment. And so what you see there, down the bottom next to that boat, that you might be able to see them. There are humans there, down there. That dark brown is grass with a thin layer of sediment on it, which will be washed off in the next rainstorm. That's it, from the biggest tsunami ever recorded in history by humans. It doesn't work. Ten centimetres is still not enough. So, by the way, I did see a tsunami in the Cook Islands. It was fascinating. New Zealand consulate called me up and said, Ron, Ron, there's a tsunami coming. We're all rushing down to the ocean to have a look at it. I thought, you people are crazy. I went down, we all stood there, and in it came. It was about this big, came through the harbour boom, and then it hit me. The Cook Islands does not have a gradual slope that allows the build-up of a wave. The Cook Islands is deep, goes straight up in an atoll and then the land. So as the energy wave comes on it does not build into a wave, it simply dissipates the moment it hits the atoll and you, all you get is that a little ripple coming in about that big so I'm, I'm proud I've seen a tidal wave. <laughs> it's an official tidal wave. So to bring you up to speed with some other stuff going on around the world, the Canadian government threw some pigs into the ocean in cages. They did kill them, by the way, beforehand. And uh, came back decades later, and they were trying to find out how fos- fossils were created. What's missing? Sediment. There's no sediment because there's no sediment on the marine floors. Sorry. The bones had all degraded. They were not turning into fossils. Okay, University of Queensland then decided to do an experiment and I've written this up in a magazine that we produced, the Creation magazine. Here they took some baby crocodiles, uh, killed them and decided to bury them under 20 centimetres of sediment. That's pretty high in terms of world standards, 20 centimetres. But guess what happened? It bloated and broke out of the 20 centimetres. And CMI would not allow me, Creation Ministries would not allow me to put a cartoon in that article because they said, Ron, we're all Christians. I wanted to put a picture or a diagram of the PhD student because they actually said they had to put weights on it to keep it down. And I wanted a picture then of the PhD student standing on the crocodile going, I want you to be a fossil. CMI said, no, Ron, that's not the way Christians think. I know, but it's the way academics think, you know. Anyhow, couldn't be done, didn't work. We did find, however, you can create a fossil in 24 hours. Now, it took 20 years of research where they were taking lizard pieces, putting them between two concrete blocks and then crushing them with extra temperature for 24 hours. But when they opened it up, They always found liquid, that's all they found, messed up liquid. One day they realised that people like Earth scientists say that the fossils are found in flood sediments. By the way, every sediment has a characteristic, a fingerprint. They are not buried in landslide sediments, they're not buried in asteroid sediments, they're not buried in other, they're buried in flood sediments. Not even windblown sediments, they're buried in flood sediments. we know that from lots of tests what they did was they took some flood sediment basically, put the lizard piece in it and then crushed it for 24 hours with incredible pressure to give the simulation of lots of lots of sediment above and speed it all up when they opened it up 24 hours later they were stunned, they had created basically mimic fossils how did that happen? the answer is simple what are you mainly made of? Water. Water prevents fossilization. The pressure of masses of sediment, we're talking masses of sediment, forces the water out of the body, but what absorbs the water? The flood sediment absorbs the water and allows the fossilization to go on. Isn't that incredible? So right now in Japan, they're looking at how do you translate that into the depth of sediment? But I've already been told by the experimenters that its you're talking, you know, Tens of metres, if not hundreds of metres of sediment. But where on earth have we ever seen that? And so a final point, just to bring up the fossils. you probably heard of this one. Back in 2005, an academic found that there were red blood cells or red uh, collagen uh, tissues that are still expandable in dinosaur bones when she cut a dinosaur bone in half. And um, that's considered an outrage. It was all wrong. She did everything wrong. Even the Royal Society in London decided to cut a fossil bone in half, a dinosaur bone. They found the same thing. In other words, those tissues which cannot last for more than 10,000 years have been given an age of 65 million because that's when the dinosaurs were around. She published in the two top journals in the world, Nature and Science. They are outstanding. It's an automatic professorship if you get that. What do the universities do? They sacked her. By the way, That discovery was also made in about 1927 and completely suppressed by the academic literature because they did not want people to know that dinosaur bones still retain tissues, fresh tissues and so on. This has been suppressed information for a long time. That's now been published as well. So what I found difficult then as a scientist, I think I had one before, it doesn't matter. No, that's all good. Sorry about that. I came to this conclusion, as an academic, as a non-Christian, that fossils are buried in deep flood sediments. There's no argument. We go out everywhere we see billions of fossils. They're in deep sediments, kilometres thick, and they're flood sediments. Number two, the sediment supply rate that we see today is completely inefficient. I worked in tropical, arctic, temperate environments, desert environments. Nowhere will you ever see the sediment needed to create a fossil today. In fact, you'll love this. There's been a search worldwide for a fossil being created today. All around the world they've been searching. Guess how many they found? None. In other words, this whole argument that the past is the same as today or that today is the same as the past, this uniformitarianism argument, is wrong. What happened to create the fossils was something that happened in the past. It is not happening today. And the next one, let's see if that comes up. A little bit of difficulty. There we go. Fossils were not formed millions of years ago uh, from Mary's data. And that led me then to the conclusion that a global flood did occur. Boy, I made that statement in a local university, I won't name it. I'd come back from overseas, helped set up a new university in a local region nearby, of which you're a part of. (laughs) I was a professor there, as I was a professor in Finland still, still a professor in China and everywhere else, helped set up the science faculty, but I made one mistake. I said, I think a global flood once occurred. Ooh, that's a naughty, naughty statement to make that, especially when you're a professor and occasional dean. I was head of a research centre. I established the university's largest research centre. Did they like me after I made this comment? No, especially when I went on with another comment, which is, I think God really exists. (laughs) Oh, Oh. today there'd be hundreds protesting out. Anyhow, it didn't happen then. But the point is, there's lots of information on this. Just to skip all that, I'll come back to how I became a Christian. I just want to touch before I get off that, we do have a creation website. It'll give you much more information than I've given you. Much more. We have over 15,000 articles written for you. They're free. You can copy them. If you're at university, use them, steal them, plagiarize them. We don't care. We've written many articles for you. They're not written for scientists. They're written for you. I struggled when I first joined Creation Ministries. I wrote my first article in any article I've written in the past, accepted by a journal immediately. CMI made me rewrite that paper four times. Ron, the community will not understand what you're saying. Ron, are you sure this is scripturally correct? Boy did I undergo that. Now I've learned how to do it and love it. But we had to. So there's a search engine up top right there, and it's called the site is called Creation. Not coming on. There we go. Creation.com. What's the site called, ladies and gentlemen? Creation.com. That's good. I'm going to give you a pass for that response as an academic. <laughs> I have been to church, but I've (laughs) gone. Who'd like to get a distinction? Okay, what's that site called? That's better. Yep, that's better. Nice response there. On that, help yourself to all of that. But that's over 40 years of research data translated into common language for you people. We also, and got them on the seats there, to keep you up to date with the brand new stuff that's going on the website. I think somebody got one, they can hold one up just to show others. Yeah, those things there, they're called Infobytes, that's them. In other words, we produce about every fortnight or so the most up-to-date, recent information from somewhere around the world, all topical, all, some of it very, very good for evangelism because we translate it into how you apply that to other people, right? So if you could, you you can either go and click on those if you've got a... Uh, you know, if you want to use that, I don't, look. I'm not even a technical person. I'm a, I'm an earth scientist. I play with dirt. Okay. This whole technology thing. What's that called? A QR code. Thank you. A QR code. You can do that, and you get it. Otherwise, we have these white forms, which are all we want is your email address and your name. That's it. And we'll start sending to you every about every two weeks. Keeps you up to date with what we're doing. And what's new and interesting around the place, and they'll be available. We'll make them. Did you want to? We'll make them available up the back there. Our lovely staff up the back there have got one. I've got one here too. That makes it easier than using the QR code. Thank you. My wife helps me out every day with this sort of stuff. Woolworths loyalty Well, What? What's a Woolworths loyalty Co? Anyhow, you know that's me. <laughs> so that's great. Now, if, if you decide after a couple of months you don't like it, what are you going to do? unsubscribe. Am I going to call you? No. Am I going to send you some steak knives? No. You're gone. Okay. So I recommend going on to that. That's great. Moving on. Not really working, is it? I might rely upon the desk. There we go. So I found myself in a difficult situation. I had been going. I'll put this down, by the way, and next slide and behold I said to myself I'm bringing floodwaters on the earth yes I heard that where I was in churches all around the world even in Libya you'd hear this sort of comment Genesis six seventeen. but the next slide shows you what I was actually teaching I was going no science says that no such flood occurred a regional flood may have occurred in the Black Sea until I made that famous statement at a local university and I was now in a lot of trouble Why? Because in the next slide you'll see, I had now switched that thinking, when you now look in more detail at the rate, distribution, volume, frequency of sediments and the abundance of sorting, the role of of sediments with fossils, because we can't explain fossils today at all by any modern day processes, they happened in the past at a particular point in time. I said, look, this all points to the Bible story, not to evolution. So now, here I am moving away from an atheist into an agnostic model of going, okay, but see, I was resisting God. Why? I'd placed my love in mammon. I'd placed my love in position. I was identifying myself by what I could do myself. But it still felt empty, of course, all of that. But in the next slide, then, I began to come up with these thinkings in my head that God did make everything and that it was all good because you're actually then looking at the destruction from the flood. I'm thinking if the flood occurred, oh, that's done that, that's done that. Now it's ruined my life when I go travelling. As we walk, drive along, my wife and I go, oh, look what the flood did. Oh, what a mess. Okay, yeah, it did this, it did that. We can't look at it anymore. We look at it from a scientific point of view and go, wow, what a mess. But it was all good in Genesis 1.31 i also heard in the next slide uh, as reading that the bible the god made everything about 6000 years ago and i did that even by using some of those dating technologies that are rejected and so on everything i looked at in landscapes which i'm not even talking about here today is young it, it is young it is not old not millions of years and the third point was that fossils were created by a global flood and i well oh that must be noah's flood so now I'm in a very difficult situation. I made these comments at university. I was uh, sent to a... No, I was an immediate sacking. Can't do an immediate sacking if, if you start talking about God. They can send you as a professor and a dean to a tin shed on the edge of campus by yourself. They'll give you a little kitchen, little, your own bathroom and all that, but you don't get your air-conditioned room in the big buildings. And it suggested it might be time to leave. You see, a scientist, a professor who's a scientist, or a scientist who's a professor, they don't really want one who's a Christian. Let's be blunt about that. In some areas you'll get a professor who can be a Christian, say in business or things like that. But in science it's looked upon with, with you know disdain. Um so I had to go through all this period and all that sort of thing. I was also then challenged by other scientists. And it's interesting how I was brought to Christ by an atheist. Alright? And this is a challenge to all of us who are Christians. How can an atheist bring an agnostic to Christ? God works in wonderful ways. What happened was this lady decided to challenge me. And I didn't know what to do. So I gave the classic academic answer to her. Go and read the book, which means the Bible. If you've been to university and an academic said to you, go and read the book, it's because they don't know the answer. So they tell you to go and read the book. So she went away, and guess what she did as an atheist? She read. And she came back with these difficult questions Why did God kill so many people? I said, What are you reading? She said, Well, I started at the beginning. I've read Genesis, Exodus, I've read. Oh, no, I don't think you meant to read those first. Now, she thought I was a Christian because I said I think God exists. She made the equivalence in that you're a Christian. I said, you've got to read those things called the Gospels, I think they're called. She walked away from me going, you Christians are crazy. You read from the back to the front. Anyhow, you Christians are mad. So anyhow, she did that and she was very annoying. She came up to me one day and said, take me to your church. I want to prove to you God does not exist. Now, she was concerned. No tutor was a Christian, no, no lecturer, no senior lecturer. Here's a professor who's also the, the director of a research centre. All the rest of it, she thought was a Christian. And she thought, I've got to help this guy. He's got to get back to being an atheist. And she said, why, take me to your church. Well, I said, I, no, I, I didn't say anything. So every time she walked this way, I walked that way. <laughs> Tried, to, But we couldn't get away because we worked in the same institution. She got a... F- Got me fed up one day and she was fed up with me and all the rest. You're not going to prove it, are you? So, oh, fine, fine, I'll pick you up we'll go to a church. So, I went around and picked her up one Sunday, went up to a church in the top of Budrum and I refused to get out of the car. And she said, What? We're not going to the church? I said, No. She says, Why? You just don't want to prove that God doesn't exist, do you? And we're arguing like this in a car. I said, No, I just don't want to go to this church. And she says, Why not? I said, Because look at everybody. They're on these old age things. They're doing this. I said, if I go into that church, I'm in in the youth group. (laughs) I did. This is is two academics arguing. And so she says, that's it then. I said, no, no, there's a big church down the road. It's called Calvary. Go down there. And it starts half an hour later anyway. So off we drove down there. We walked in and we had an academic argument in the middle of the church. As everyone sort of watched us and sort of, you know, looked at us, we walked into the church and said, you said you were taking me to a church. I said, it is a church. Sit down. She goes, well, where's the stained glass windows? I said, I don't know. Sit down. What's with the band on stage? Where's the organ? I said, I don't know, sit down. Where's the wooden pews? What do you got all these luxury seats for? I said, I don't know, just sit down with you. We were yelling at each other in the middle of Calvary. The pastor got up, he spoke, we don't remember a single word. And in the end he said, right. He knew there was people there that needed help. (laughs) He heard about us. And he said, right, I want you all to bow your heads, close your eyes. Gave have a great message. Put your hand up if you're now going to give your life to Christ. Guess what she did? She put a hand up. An atheist who came to prove God does not exist put a hand up in church. But she cheated. She opened one eye to see if I approved because she thought I was a Christian to see if I approved that she'd become a Christian. And guess what she saw? My hand was up. (laughs) And she thought, oh, you Christians are crazy. You're already a Christian. And she didn't know that I was not. Here's your take-home message. If an atheist can take an agnostic into church and become Christian, come on, guys. We need to be out there. We need to be serving Him and bringing glory in His name only. That's what we need to be doing. All of us. All of us using this. And so, did she annoy me anymore? No. A year and a half later, I married her. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> she sends her love. She can't be here today. She would have loved to have been here. She does a lot of women's ministry now. That's my main priority. It changed our lives totally, by the way. She does women's ministry, particularly looking at women's identity. And boy, that's having a big impact. She's speaking at schools and churches, those sort of things now, with women's groups only. Uh, That's where she's at. I joined CMI after many years of... um, I had to be changed. I had to be stripped of my love of money. So the moment I gave my life to Christ, uh, yeah, I was terminated from the university. I was then also terminated from every contract I had around the world in consulting. I became unemployed for many years, lost all my money, my savings, lost it all. But I had to admit that I was placing my faith still in money, not in God. Even though I had been saved, I still carried with me that burden you carry. You've got to understand, you've got to take it off. And so one day, Julie came running into the room and told me, you are not allowed to speak to God like that, because she'd heard what I'd said. What had happened was, I was now basically bankrupt, I was down on the floor, praying to God, God, I need a job, and I hit the table, my desk in front of me, and a job came up on the screen, the screen woke up, and I just went, oh, you're kidding me, God. I'm a professor. I'm an academic. I'm a consultant. I am not working as a part-time sales assistant in Coorong Bookstore. And some of you, many of you have seen me there. Julie came in and said, you cannot speak to God like that. And I said, I'm not even going to submit a resume, I'm going to submit a letter of intent. See how they take it. Well, I got the job the next day. So anyhow, immediately appointed to full-time, immediately then to IC and then asked by Curon to go down and be Head of Acquisitions and IT. I realised I was climbing the ladder again. So I quit uh, from full-time and uh, joined Creation Ministries. That was a journey in itself. Um, I had also to be changed. I still had to lose elements of my pride and my arrogance because as a professor you have pride and arrogance. I lost them very quickly when it was diagnosed. I had a massive brain tumour, that I would be dead within two weeks. Nothing can be done. I was rushed to Wesley. What happened is a miracle. It is actually classified as a miracle. I became... They had to to cut the head in half, and then they they couldn't drill holes. They had to cut it in half, peel my face off. So my request to have... the I'd like one of the photos, because I want to know what it looked like as a fossil. They won't give it to me. My recovery was spectacular because the Lord had words to me. He was explaining to me a lot about how to serve because I'd spent my life avoiding that. I was looking at myself, not others. I then, surprisingly, I then became the subject of a PhD study at the University of Queensland. They studied me. (laughs) They studied me to find out how I recovered so well. Does that upset an academic? I can tell you, it upsets an academic. I train people to do PhDs, not to do one on me. Anyhow, University of Queensland did a PhD on me to try and find out. The professor gave me 30 seconds, tell us what happened. I said, the Lord came to me. She said, yeah, I've heard that before, but now I'm going to study you and find out the truth. Okay, yeah, again, that academic reasoning. So anyhow, to wrap it up then, I've given you some homework. If you can record these down, two pieces of scripture here, just note them. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Very similar, in fact, to what Pastor Darren was saying earlier. Cast down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Just note, you know, take a photo of it or whatever, 2 Corinthians 10.5. And here's a second scripture that I'm giving you as homework, and that is Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which is so common today, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world. Oh, how powerful is that? That wasn't just Paul expressing that in the first century. That is the message of the 21st century. Because, as Pastor Darren has said, we have shifted away from science to explain how God did it, to another type of science that God doesn't exist. And so Colossians 2.8, there's your two pieces of scripture. What I want you to do is to read them, find another person in this church or elsewhere. I want you to sit down, explore it. I want you to ask yourself, do you place the Bible here and science here? Or do you place the Bible here and science below it? Many of us, we well, say so we place the Bible here, but guess what? There will be occasions, certain events, certain pieces of news where we might just slip for a moment into believing that the science is true, not the Bible. I want you just to explore that with somebody you trust. Really just explore that in that manner to see how that's going on. And then... Go over there, have a good look. We've got some great material. Our purpose is to link and feed. Why do we want to link with you and feed with you that? We want you to link with other people and feed them. That's what evangelism is about. We link and we feed. This book here is great for linking and feeding, it answers over 60 questions raised by non Christians as to, and then the questions you get asked as a Christian. There's a simple two page, three page answer to all those questions. As a Christian, and it's visible. Hopefully, your faith is visible as you live in this world. If it's visible, someone might come up to you and say, so, are you a Christian? Yeah. Well, if you're a Christian, who did Cain marry? Now, if you're not sure, you just go, let's catch up tomorrow for coffee. I've got to go home. You pull that book off the shelf, and there's a little chapter there, who did Cain marry? Any of those questions that society is asking, we keep surveying them, and keep updating that book. Have a look at it. You'll love it. It is really, absolutely, wonderfully scripturally correct and all the rest of it. Number two, there's a little book there. Here it is. Here, actually. I should have had them up. There's the red book, just so you know what you're looking for. That's our number one book sale around the world, by the way. This one here is very good for university, uh, for particularly year 11 and 12, who are going into university to prepare them before they go. Because we lose 70 to 80% in university. This book is the first attempt. We're writing more of this sort of thing to help them. It's about the Creation Survival Guide. That's a great book. It's only $4. We make no money, by the way, on any of our books, as in the total, that is. Why? We want to link and feed. That's our goal. Then we have this one here. I love this. This is my favourite coffee table book. We have produced the magazine for over 40 years, so we took the best articles over those 40 years, re-digitized them, re-edited them, all up to date, brilliant. This coming Christmas is a wonderful gift to give to people. We leave it on our coffee table book at home and so on, and that's that's an incredible book. And lastly, the one that we really, I think, is the best of all our stuff, is the magazine. Over 40 years of publishing, top-notch. It's, it's now sold in over 120 countries, I think. It's translated into, I don't know how many languages. Finland translate every issue. China translates them. Everyone else does it because each has a children's section, an interview of somebody or a couple of Christians. It'll talk about sediments, or well not sediments, but landscapes, birds, Every issue is different, every issue is beautiful and it's a very powerful tool particularly for young people for them to see all of that. And so I just thought I'd raise those there but let's come back to the main point. The main point today is as your pastor said we have this unfortunate disjunction between this anomaly if you like in science and faith. Everything that's being done in science today is pointing to the faith, pointing to the Bible. Scientists are becoming Christians all around the world. Creation Ministries International, we know hundreds have given their lives and are now working with us to spread this message. From all different you know, backgrounds, whether they're astrophysicists or whatever, they're giving their life to Christ. And so that's why we do all this. It's to help equip you to handle the 21st century. And so it's just, it's just like Paul, when he looked at the 1st century, I'm going to be blunt, I've travelled to over 400 churches around Australia Australia today is no different to the first century as it was to Paul. We are not a Christian nation anymore. The number of people who go to church now is so low, no more than Paul would have seen. So I come to this final point. When Peter was speaking to the Jews, he spoke of Jewish history and Jesus himself. But what did Paul do? He didn't do that. He was speaking to Gentiles, just as today we are effectively speaking to Gentiles. What was the message he used? It was creation. Creation. Based on reason. Because why? Everybody is looking to know who they are, why they are, how they came to be. I've seen evangelistic groups on the coast now, carrying the magazine, talking to young people, because they would love, they love that word, creation. Deliberately chosen. To attract people. And it does. It attracts so many people. Creation is what really connects to people today. Look at Paul's message as he travelled across the Gentile nations. He kept coming back to creation. Book of Genesis and so on. The foundation of faith. I think that's what we really need to be looking at today. Because the majority of people under the age of 35 have not heard the word Jesus Christ except in a derogatory manner. So we need to look at all that. We need to do a lot more work on that. Creation Ministry is doing it. You guys are doing it, I know. Great work out there. Let me just end in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share my personal journey, Lord, and uh, particularly more importantly, to share what, how you express yourself to myself, to my wife, and to other scientists as well, Lord, how you have brought us to you. Lord, we just thank you so much for that. I thank you for this church, Lord. I thank you for the the, the power and the, the blessing you've given this church, Lord. And the Holy Spirit being here, Lord, is so obvious, so so powerful, Lord. It's just a blessing for me to be here and experience this as well. I pray that this church has an impact in this region, Lord. Not just Namble but in the region. And it continues to grow, continues to expand, impacts upon people, and just uh, changes this entire region, Lord. Whilst it is a Christian region, Lord, it's not where we want it to be. Um, We want it to be more Christian, far more, Lord. And so we pray for you help each and every one of us, Lord, to express our love for you, to be able to express it freely in society, to be able to speak to people in the streets, Lord, to be able to help them, to link with them and feed with them also, Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I look forward to hearing great blessings of this church, Lord, in the future. Always thanking you in the one and only name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. Amen. Thank you.